Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by Heidi White, who is enduring the snowfall in Colorado. And I'm joined by Tim McIntosh, who is enduring... Um, attack by a crow. crow. Attack by crow. <laughs> Tim, are you going to be okay? I'm going to be okay. The crow is not going to be okay if it keeps up this persistent calling. Crows call, if I'm not mistaken. They don't, they don't sing. They don't mm-hmm. chirp. They only call. That's true. And that, up until this moment, that crow was calling with great violence. And why did it stop cro- um, stop crowing? I'll tell you right now, my menacing glare. <laughs> as one as one does when Tim menaces. Yeah, glare, glaringly right? menaces. Right. Menacingly glares. <laughs> hey, Tim, do you know what a group of crows is called? That's a murder, correct? It is indeed a murder. Mm-hmm. Speaking I, of I think groupings... That's amazing. Um, what is a... Oh, no... It's a bishop of something. While we're on the subject of Catholic priests and Catholic leadership, it's a murder. Uh, I mean, it's a murder of crows and a bishop of <laughs> maybe a close reader can tell us. Uh, you, like, what are we? Are we doing a syllogism right now? Is that uh, like a, uh, not a syllogism, but a um, what, what's the thing on the SAT where you have to? Uh, this is to this. Oh yeah, this yeah, yeah. This. Um, yeah, like an analogy test. An analogy, isn't it? yeah, yeah. Um, you're wanting to know what a the, a bishop is a name for what kind of animal or something? So thankful for Google right yeah. in this moment. Are you Googling it? Yeah, totally. It's a bishop of animals? No, I'm trying to find oh. out what that is. All right, well, oh. can carry on while I... Yeah. <laughs> this is so good. Such good radio. This is great audio. Hey. Just, I, make sure that the volume is cranked up on this, listeners. Especially, for, especially <laughs> your level, your crow level. And when you're mixing the audio after the show, make sure that your crow level is lifted all the way up. So every time that yeah, crow lift the crow level into Tim's ear, then he can think murderous <laughs> thoughts about the murder of crows. How are you going to get rid of the crows, though? Yeah, that's the problem with suburban living. Is if I hurl <laughs> a stone at the calling crow then I'm actually hurling it into a neighbor's yard and potentially at a neighbor's house. Mm-hmm. So it's all about it's playing the dilemma, angles. It's a right? moral dilemma, but it's all about playing the angles. It doesn't really seem like a moral dilemma. It seems like it's about competence. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. How good are you at hurling? I would say on a scale of one to 10, ten I'm a Nolan Ryan hurler. Right, like like the Brewers pitcher. What's his name? O. See how I did that? Like full circle. Brewers. Nicely done. Yeah. Nicely so done. are you as good a hurler as O? I, wait, Heidi, before Is I answer that question, 
You're in Rockies Colorado. Guy, the Rockies guy is actually O. Oh, is it O? I'm sorry. Oh Forgive my me. goodness, I that's just what so I was gonna do. This weekend in North Carolina, so I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Heidi came to town and then she just took naps on the couch while the rest of us watched that's sports. That's true. That's 100% true. <laughs> we it did was go totally apple picking and do a bunch of work, but yeah, you know, yeah. mostly the napping though. We did go apple picking and do a little work, and then we uh, watched we sports did. and ate food. And Heidi took naps. And I took naps. It was amazing. I feel great. So, yeah. <laughs> but we probably actually should talk about talk Graham about Green. The book. Yeah. Hey, so we're here to talk about uh, the power and the glory. Our listeners, I mean, I, the three that are still with us, will. Yeah. <laughs> are gonna. This is gonna be a great show for the three of you who are still here. Uh, we're talking about chapters three and four. That chapter three is called the river, and chapter four is called the bystanders. And um, I was I was saying previously that uh, when I was a kid, I used to always look for books that had chapter titles. Other kids look for books that had pictures. I just wanted chapter titles. And I'm not entirely sure why, except that a lot of books that I was reading, I think, had chapter titles. And I think for some reason, I liked the sort of the um, the map that chapter titles offered. Uh, so it got me thinking a little bit about uh, how how our experiences with books evolve the more we read them. So the first time you read a book, something like chapter titles might be like, for me, I haven't read this book in forever and I've never really read it very closely before. So the chapter titles are still pretty valuable to me. But I think Heidi, you mentioned that you didn't even notice that there were chapter titles. I've never noticed it before. And there's no chapter titles in part two. It's just chapter one, two, three, and four. That is interesting. Well, and I'm not sure now I'm flipping through chapter three and thinking you probably have a really good thought on this to share, but don't ask me first. Cause I don't know why it's called the river. So, Hey, Heidi. So I was wondering, why do you think chapter three is called the river? <laughs> right. Thank you. Hey, I'm before you answer that pause. though, <laughs> before you answer that though, quick word from our friends over at Belmont Abbey college. Um, this is an appropriate sponsor for a book written by a, one of the preeminent Catholic novelists of the 20th century about um, you know, ideas in Catholicism because Belmont Abbey is a Catholic Benedictine college uh, near us here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they have just launched a new honors college. This distinctive program prepares students for an exceptional career through a flexible, robust, great books education. The curriculum focuses on the great conversation among the most influential ancient Christian and modern authors and culminates in a unique senior year dedicated to considering various crises in the West. Students can choose four years of study committed ex- uh, committed exclusively to the great books or elect a traditional major while also taking a substantive great books core. Honors students will study abroad in Ireland or Italy, which let's just pause there and think about that for a minute. Hmm. Okay. And foster lasting friendships centered around the shared pursuit of truth. A scholarship covering nearly half of the college's tuition is included. So if you want to learn more, visit belmontabbeycollege.edu slash great books. A life well lived awaits. And again, that is Belmont, B E L M O N T, Abbey, A B B E Y, college.edu. And you spell edu like edu, just to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, the power and the glory. And quickly, I, one thing I was wondering is how this book, how your experiences, your opinions, your feelings about this book have changed in this particular reading. You both have read this book before. I had said that, well, I had read much of it before. I had not. It was more like assignment reading. It wasn't close reading. So this is a first close read for me. But both of you have read this many times and you've read it pretty closely. But I'm wondering if this particular time has been different for either of you uh, this time around. Heidi, what about you? Uh, Yes, this has been very different because... 
I, this is such a personal book to me. And so I've read it very personally, actually haven't Mm. ever done a close reading of this book. I know it very well, but this time I'm paying attention to formal elements, to uh, things like chapter titles. um, And that is a completely new experience for me. And I'm I'm loving it. And it's also because I, I enjoy it so much. I feel a little um, vulnerable, like sharing it with everybody in case they don't like it. And Graham talked about that last time with crossing to safety, which it's fine if someone doesn't like a book, that's perfectly legitimate, but mm-hmm. I feel more of like a little bit defensive of it because I know it's so sad and that's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, right, so right. reading it, I'm noticing just a lot of different things. Well, I will say I did notice a lot of listeners on the Facebook group and by a lot, I mean like at least three, um, <laughs> say, I wasn't sure that I was going to read this, but because you guys begged us to do it on the show, I'm going to keep up with it. So I saw those also. I'll take it. I think Heidi deserves, I think Heidi, you deserve all the credit for your impassioned plea last week. Well, we, we we tackled that one together, Tim, with David too. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, so Tim, what about you? Uh, I think you've read it before. You, you said something previously, like it felt, feels a little bit less murky. And I want to talk about that idea. Is that, how, what do you mean by that when you say that it feels a little less murky? You told Heidi and I that previously. The point of view shifts relatively rapidly. Yeah. I mean, it not just changes usually from chapter to chapter, but it changes within each chapter multiple times. And yeah, yeah. it just reads a little bit, the narrative is a little bit broken intentionally. I don't know right. if that's the right word, but right, it's, right. it's shattered or disparate or in some way. Yeah, And I think this reading has been a little bit easier. I also, I'm listening to the audio. Mm. I, I, for some reason, I'll just tell you a little story about my life. I just got glasses about four months ago. Mm. And when I walked out of, I've uh, never, yeah, I am getting old. (laughs) But when I left the optometrist, the woman behind the counter said, so is this a replacement pair? And I said, no, this is my first pair. And she, and she looked at my prescription and she said, really? Like, <laughs> what have you been doing? And it, I have, my life changed four months ago because I, now I try to read a book without my glasses. And I think, what in the world was I doing? It was so, I was having to work so hard. I was tired at two o'clock in the, ever, in the afternoon, every afternoon, because I'm constantly either reading or writing. So And the effort was just wearing you out, yeah. Yes, right. So the last maybe three books that I've read, before that, well, before that. so much. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just started, it was so easy and comfortable listening to audiobooks rather than looking at the page because the page was just wearing me out. Hmm. So that being said, I listened to, I'm listening to The Power and the Glory. It's not a very good recording, but... I do think that's also aiding in helping me understand the narrative a little bit better than the first couple of times that I read it. Yeah. The idea, the thing you said about being murky, I think is the right word. Not, Cause I was trying to think about how I, how I'm experiencing this book and that's, I couldn't think of the word. And I do think that, but I think that that is the word that I'm feeling. So when I read it, it it's one of those things where you guys know the things that I like. I, I there's formal elements I'm constantly looking for and being drawn to and, you know, great sentences or 
individual moments. And so I can see those things, those individual moments pretty clearly, but it does feel murky. It feels a little bit like, um, driving somewhere, not exactly knowing where the next turn is and kind of, I mean, we all have ways in Google maps now and all that. So maybe this is a, this is an analogy that just doesn't really work, but here, can I, can I chime in with an analogy, David? Sure. I broke, I broke my shaving mirror, you know, a while ago and I was too lazy to go get a new one. And so I kept using my little palm sized shaving mirror and it's broken into about, it's missing one corner and it's got about five different pieces that are all slightly misarranged. Please tell me and this is going to show up in a play. <laughs> It'd be, if I did that, it would just be way too, like the on metaphor the would be way yeah. too on the nose. <laughs> Our vision is broken. And you know, yeah, I just, it'd just be way too on the nose. But for the podcast, I think it's a helpful illustration. That's what this book feels like to me. It's like, yeah, you're looking the lens, the lens that you're looking at is always providing a slightly different avenue of the main story. And I think that main yeah. story is the inner and outer life of our priest, the whiskey yeah. priest. Yeah. But everybody's opinion about him is so varied. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when, like, for example, in chapter three, when we meet, um, the girl who is helping Coral. hide him from the police. Yeah. I feel like her, her opinion of the priest, what she says about the priest or what she says about the Catholic faith is that she doesn't believe that stuff. But I get this sense that that's not completely true. I don't think that she's being intentionally deceitful, but right. I think that she maybe doesn't know something that's going on inside of her. Mm, and yes. Graham Greene is giving us a little hint of that. That feels like looking through this broken shaving mirror at the priest. Yeah. Mm. There's, there's another metaphor that comes to mind as you talk about the, the, the broken shaving mirror. First of all, you have a broken shaving mirror. I mean, you have a shaving mirror in the first place. I enjoy that fact. Second of all, <laughs> um, um, it's, it's also like, like a puzzle where you've got, you know, my, my boys love puzzles. And so I'll do sometimes do them with them and you mm -hmm. got half the pieces will be turned over the right way and half you have to get them all turned right side over so you can see them all and figure out what, how they all fit together. And it, it you'll get, pieces together here and there so you get one corner of it right and you'll be like i feel like i have a sense of what this corner is so if it's a puzzle of of a map of the world which my kids love we'll get you know north america put together and we're like okay we have a sense of north america and then we got to figure out these other pieces and we got to get europe put together and asia put together and you got to find all the pieces that go there and in some ways when i'm having a hard time the murkiness comes because to, to your point there's that sense of what exactly is the sort of common through line what is the thread uh -huh. that goes through all of these parts that ties them all together? And that's the part that's not entirely clear yet. And that's, right. but I, you know, that's where you have to trust someone. You have to trust the skill of someone like Graham Greene. He has, right. you know, we, we, we trust him. We believe in him. And I, I mean, I certainly do. So I, I know that it's going to come together and that eventually with some effort, I'm going to be able to get Europe and Asia put together and I'm going to see how they relate to North America. And I'm going to see how that through line works and maybe I'll, or maybe I'll just go buy a new shaving mirror. I'm not sure. But, um, th the point is that through line, that thread that goes through all the parts is the part that's missing for me. And right. that's the part that makes it feel murky. Um, yeah. and I imagine other people who've read it before, but don't necessarily remember how it ends or how it all wraps up together, or how this one specific character ties into it feels the same way. And if you've never read it at all, you probably feel a little bit like you're you're blind and someone's having to lead you from room to room and there's smells and the floor feels a certain way and all that. 
but you're not exactly sure what the whole house is like. So you feel a little bit like you're, we just, there's so many metaphors going on here. That's confusing. We're doing exactly what Graham Greene's doing here, or I am. But, um, that, <laughs> Which that is a mean, lot like Graham Greene. Exactly. exactly. Heidi, you, having read this as many times as you have, right. do you well, not it, feel that yes. anymore? Um, I don't feel it anymore. Now I'm seeing all of the, uh, I guess you'd call it foreshadowing or the connections, the strings, like the strands that kind of weave into creating this tapestry that are all meaningful. I'm paying attention to those smaller ones, which is one way I'm reading it differently. Mm. Uh, but we talked last week about uh, Green's just really wonderful formal habit of, of, we called it delayed decoding. And I think you see that throughout the whole story. There's this, you know, even as, as, as we've been chatting, I've been writing down oh, maybe this is why this chapter is titled The River. I've never paid attention to that before. Um, and the word murky that we're using is a perfect, like that's a very, you know, liquid word, right? Uh, right. So that, uh, that Graham Greene gives us these clues and we really don't have any way to put them together until he decodes it for us. And so to your point about trusting the author, uh, and that's what... That's what we're having to do the first time you read this novel. And then as you go back and read it again, then you then you have kind of the joy of saying, oh, now that I know what's going to happen, I get this little piece. But you have to read the book the first time in order yeah. to get to that point. Mm. Yeah. I, I think this is a book that re rewards the second read much more than other books reward a second read. I mean, I, I always like my second read better than my first read if it's a really me good too. book me too um and i think the the my enjoyment going through this the second time that i went through it, whatever you know a few years ago oh i liked it so much more yeah you know i'm about to like push us into fairly deep theological terrain and i don't even know that i can really articulate this but i'm going to try there is a um filmmaker that i bet both of you know david lynch Mm -hmm. He he made a wonderful movie called The Straight Story, which is about, I think it's a World War II vet who's driving to go see his dying brother. And he has he's had his license revoked. And so he has to drive the lawnmower across the state to go see his brother. And it's a delightful movie. But most of David Lynch's other movies, uh, like Blue Velvet is a classic that he's done. He is a great aesthetic filmmaker in that he makes he makes these haunting, beautiful images, and he captures them for the screen. Um, but his movies, other than the straight story, his more aesthetic movies, they drive me crazy because mm. they're so potent. But you get to the end of the story, and there's not really much of a resolution. In fact, there usually isn't any resolution. And I remember I've seen like two or three David Lynch films and I get to the end and I'm like, okay, David, wrap it up for us. And I don't need everything put in like a pretty little bow. Yeah, you don't mind but stasis. I need, what's that? You don't mind stasis. I don't, yeah, I don't mind that at all. But repeatedly I've watched his movies and I have been so frustrated that he just basically creates a series of images and he makes the viewer put them together. Now, it's a really fine line because I think a really great, we've commented on this show often how a really wonderful writer 
makes the reader do a lot of work mm-hmm. and the reader has to get involved in the imaginative experience and the moral experience and the aesthetic experience is all the more rich because we have to do the work. But right. what's different between, I think, Graham Greene's novel and David Lynch's movies is that I think there's usually a lot of commonality when people get to the end of Graham Greene's novels. They say, oh, I know now what the story was about. Right. I right. did the work and I know what this is about. Whereas with David Lynch, everyone just kind of like, oh, I think that it was about horses. Oh, that's funny because I think it was about, it reminded me of a picnic that I had with my family on the beach when I was seven. And it just, there's no semblance of coherence among these different images in a David Lynch film. And I wonder, this is the kind of like theological speculation. It seems like this novel, which we're just going to tell you, is going to cohere together in the end, is such a picture of the narrative of the Christian life. The hope Mm -hmm. is that despite all of the pain, despite all of the confusion, despite people that we love doing things that we don't understand, despite us doing things that we don't understand, at the end, it's going to make sense. It's going to be redeemed in some way. So, yes. Yes. I, yeah. I, think, I don't think that you could have. I don't think you could have a. I mean, it, I don't know how to put the label. This is Christian art on anything. It's a really difficult thing to right. do. But it seems like it's. It'd be really difficult for me to conceive of um, really potent Christian art that reflects in some way the narrative of the gospel, not at least cohering together at the end. It doesn't mean it has to always be happy by no means. It can be very sad. It can be tragic, but I think it needs to cohere together at the end. Yes. Agreed. Mm. I think what I'm, I think that's kind of what I'm getting at when I use that, that analogy of the thread, like that, that you begin to see how all the different images relate to each other and that, and that, Mm -hmm. that ultimately those relationships between the images um, kind of, coming together through that thread the thread can twist around can even double back upon itself and all that but in the end it ties them all together and you begin to see through the relationships of those images you begin to see the relationships between those images the be- those relationships begin to cohere into something solid you can sort of grab onto it becomes less less fluid less murky um, yeah something something i mean not you know we'll i'll just use grasp graspable is the word something graspable um and that's when and i think what right now for me anyway is I'm I'm hunting, so to speak, that something graspable. The images, mm-hmm. the individual moments, are incredible. You know the the line, the the writing, the 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 formal elements. Yeah. You know you you see Green Green's skill, his talent at work. Um, you see the evidence of that, but the challenge is just getting your hands around it and figuring out what it means. And so I suspect there's a lot of listeners who feel similar to the way I feel about that. So mm-hmm. I think one way that you, the two of you, can probably help me and help other listeners is help us identify, you know, where are some of these images coming together? Where are we seeing through lines? Um, you know, I'm certainly looking for them myself as well, but I think that's definitely a way that the two of you can sort of guide us yeah. as, as we're discussing. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. So I do have a thought on that, even in these two chapters, which again, yeah. where if in the first part of a novel, generally you're, you've got that rising action thing, there's, 
uh, we're, we're getting threat, we're identifying threads, but the action of the story is not in full swing yet. This is still towards the beginning. Um, so last week, again, we talked about, uh, look for the impact of the priest upon the people that he meets and whether or not he, he notices that or does anything or has agency in that impact, if that makes sense. So in these chapters, we see that really clearly, particularly with Coral, as you pointed out, Tim, uh, who I said last week, and we'll reiterate again, she's my favorite character other than the priest. Mm. Um, This this little girl who has this very intense fragility, but wants so much to be strong um, and to be seen as strong, this fragility disguised as strength, and nobody sees that Mm. in her, right? They... um, so, but she, after the priest leaves, she feeds the priest, takes care of the priest. And then after he leaves, she, I think it's the next day, her father leaves again, which there's significance in that the river takes him away again. And she gets her period. That's, that. there's that, this little interval of she starts to feel, they call it her woman's pain. That's when you know that's happening, right? So this transition happens in her life, a major significant moment for a woman right after the priest has left her. Mm. And she starts having all these feelings that she doesn't understand both physically and emotionally. And uh, it says, there's a little line that says that she's unwilling to do a task and it had never entered her mind to be unwilling to do a task before. And that's all of that happened with the arrival and departure of the priest. So look for things like that as you're reading the story, these little moments, these nuggets that can't possibly have anything to do with him intending to make that impact, right? But things follow him. Things happen in his wake. Um, And that's structurally important. And then also it's important to the meaning of the story. So that's just one example of those things to watch for. Heidi, can I read a little section um, that I think will sort of obliquely reinforce your point? So on my pagination, it's page You can do this as long as you make sure that there's like a nice track of crow cawing going on behind you. (laughs) Right? Please, we need that. He left after my menacing glare. Your murderous, um, your murderous curling. <laughs> my murderous glare. Um, <laughs> she is talking to the priest, and um, the priest says, "Is this in chapter three? This is in chapter three. You know, he's basically saying nobody in the church even knows that he's still alive. He mm-hmm. hopes that he can get caught." She says, "Of course." You could renounce. You could renounce. The priest says, "I don't understand." She says, "Renounce your faith." She said, using the words of her European history. He said, "It's impossible. There's no way. I'm a priest. It's out of my power." Mm-hmm. The child listened intently. She said, "Like a birthmark." Oh, so good. And I thought, "Oh, it's so good." And I thought that for me going through it now a third time is a big clue that I did not pick up on about how, how the priest is functioning in this world. And this girl seems to get it. It's beyond his power to renounce. Um, 
and he's marked in some way, he was marked by birth. Right. You can't change that. Right. Right. Well, and then the very next sentence, this is to your point in the very next sentence is she could hear him sucking desperately at the bottle when mm. he does have agency, right? It's to his own destruction. And yet he is marked for this calling. There's that constant um, tension between competing forces internally and externally in the life of the priest. Mm-hmm. As a you- Protestant, this is a book that is um, it is difficult to understand. The first time I read it, it was difficult to understand. Um, I think trying to think how to delicately phrase this. How I, important some of the things are to the people? Like it's difficult right. to empathize with some of those? Yes, and how little the priest, the priest is not, uh, how little efficacious he is. He's not, um, he is not the one by his own insight, by his own powerful teaching, by his own um Herculean efforts to suffer. He is not the, he's not bringing the change that we're going to start to see in the book. He Hmm. kind of resents his duty. I mean, he does it, but um, it's not by a lot of the things that I think as a Protestant, I'm sort of inculcated into seeing as the ways that the gospel moves. Great teaching. Um, the, the charisma of the Holy spirit through a personality, those things are absent. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking about, we were talking about subtext last week and how green trades in subtext, but then I was thinking about how there's a lot of times when he sort of just tells us what something means, you know, like this, this, this thing about this person meant this that he thought about the world this way or there was so it felt very anti-subtextual in certain instances but i think that that is one area where the subtext really is important Mm -hmm. that there is that the that the spiritual and theological ideas that he's getting at are where are you know between the layers um and and those seem to be something that it takes some some work and some i don't know some puzzle building to Mm. kind of suss out and and identify. Right. I agree. Well, and I think that Tim's point is really important that this book portrays the sacraments as something objective. And that's a dividing line, even among the people of our faith. Mm -hmm. And so even that itself creates a response in the reader if you are a liturgical, if you are a Catholic Christian, you're going to respond very differently to this book than a Protestant mm-hmm. or a communist, right? Or, or an atheist who is yeah. going to be the hero of this novel, right? You might be able to see the priest through the eyes of the author or the audience, but he's not going to feel heroic at all. And so, So that is a fascinating glimpse into, I mean, I'd say the brilliance of this novel and the ambiguity of it. Um, 
and the humanity of all of these characters. The fact that the priest believes that the sacraments are an objective reality that's bigger than him, that colors, that that is the dividing line of every choice that he makes in this mm-hmm. novel. That's why he stays instead of escapes. That's why, that's why everything. But if he's wrong, is he, what, who is he then? Right. So that's, I mean, that's, that's a really powerful question and an issue that you're bringing up even within the faith. If, if he is, if the elements are not, not only, objective but also potentially efficacious yes then he is what's the what's the line in paul's epistle we are the most to be scorned talking about if the resurrection didn't happen we are the right. most to be all, scorned. all men most to be pitied yeah and i get that same feeling about the priest he, i mean he's the most pitiful character in the book everybody else is uncomfortable because they're in boiling hot mexico but right. internally, they're pretty comfortable. He's he's in deep discomfort in every possible way, and he's doing it for a cause that almost everyone that he comes across just looks at is just pitiful. Except for when we get to chapter four, it right. starts. It, we see we see glimpses of a village that takes him and the efficaciousness of the elements very seriously and the efficaciousness right. of the sacraments i should say very seriously yes absolutely and again that chapter chapter four the bystanders and that's fast i really need to think about these chapters <laughs> uh, that mr tench is writing a letter that's this is the impact that the priest makes right somehow somehow now mr tench is reaching out to his long estranged wife for no reason mm-hmm. at all mm-hmm. Which that calls to mind what the priest said. You know, you, uh, one of you just mentioned the scene where the where Coral says to him, "Well, why you could just renounce your faith?" And he says, yes. "He says it's impossible." But he he says, "I'm not choosing not to." He says, "It's out of my power." Yeah, I, right. I literally, I literally cannot. I cannot. Uh, and that's sort of similar to what you're saying. It's very there, right? yes, right. Well, and. And in this novel, and we haven't talked about Padre Jose at all, but uh, in this novel, there's only one character who is unmitigatingly disgusting and negative, and that is the priest who has renounced his faith. Mm-hmm. There's nothing redeeming about him in the whole book. He's gross. He's uh, he's a broken, defeated, useless old man. There's something sort of Dante-esque. Yes. About not, not 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 like Dante himself, but like a character you'd find in like the Inferno or Oh, that's so yeah. good. The inability to repent. Oh, that's so good, David. That's exactly what it is in Dante. That's great. The great tragedy of Dante is not necessarily their sufferings, but the fact that they cannot repent. And there you know, is no way back. That's what Padre Jose is presented as. Come to think of it, the huh. way he even uh, characterizes but then also describes and portrays and reveals the world to us feels in some ways like the way he portrays i mean to me anyway this is purely subjective like the way parts of the inferno are portrayed and there's a sort of murkiness about the inferno huh. the way he walks through works through i mean i'm not saying that this is meant to be like dante but there's i'm i'm just there's echoes for me i'll just put it that way um both of the way he 
uh, portrays the place and in the sort of murkiness of it. Um, but That's I find that great. I That's do find that murkiness to be present in a lot of um, epic, epic works of literature. No, 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 I mean, I mean, epic, like in a, in a literal sense, right? I mean, in a very defined sense, not in a sort of modern sense, right? Um, where you not just wait. meaning like super awesome. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. <I'm big. laughs> Dope. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> But then, you know, it's interesting because in that same conversation, Coral is saying, I lost, you see, I don't believe in God. I lost my faith when I was 10. And he says, well, well, I'll pray for you. And so for her, it almost, for her, it's like, I, I don't have any choice either. Like she mm-hmm. seems to be thinking she doesn't have any sense. She lost it. It's gone. Um, there's a sort of innocence about that, but also sort of a, I don't know, there's a commitment to that loss in some ways. And that mm-hmm. mirrors his sense of, this is, it is impossible that I should renounce my faith. It's not even like, I couldn't, I couldn't even choose to do that if I wanted to. Right. And there's, so so there's something um, like early on in the book, both of their um, sort of commitment to that. Hers is in sort of an innocent way and his is in sort of a, um, like, I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but that that's contrasted with the sort of gross other priest uh-huh. Who 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 does choose to renounce his faith? And I don't know why he can choose it, but but um, he can choose to renounce it, but the stranger priest can't. Right. What about so? What enables this uh, father pa- father? What which one is it? Pa- yeah, Padre Jose. Padre Jose. The, um, what enables him to renounce his faith, but the stranger priest can't? Right. Well, it's described as the unforgivable sin. Well, he calls it despair. Jose, the, Jose, uh, he's speak, it's on page 49 in my, I have the Penguin Classics version. Um, he's been in the graveyard and that family who's lost a child has, is yeah. begging him to pray for this little girl and he won't mm-hmm. do it. And mm-hmm. in so doing, he condemns himself and the soul of this child. And so... And he may have lost, and then he describes himself at the, at, at the end of it, his wife is calling him to bed and there's actually no pleasure for him there. And um, it's just an issue of control and domination, right? And he says he knew he was in the grip of the unforgivable sin, despair, right. mm-hmm. which is not only despair isn't only just a feeling of great sadness and giving up, but it is a renouncing of anything transcendent. Right. But he, so that's, I think that's maybe the subtext of, Um, of this issue with Jose and why he's presented so negatively and every other character has at least some humanity in them. I'm glad you mentioned this scene because they're asking him to do the baptism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it says, um, Padre Jose, the old man repeated, a prayer. They smiled at him waiting. They were quite accustomed to people dying, but an unforeseen hope, so contrasted with his hap- with his despair later in this section, of an unforeseen hope of happiness had bobbed up among the tombs. They could boast after this that one at least of their family had gone into the ground with an official prayer. And what does Father, what does Padre Jose say there? Mm-hmm. It's impossible. So that uh-huh. being contrasted with yes. stranger, he says it's impossible that he should renounce his faith. They're both they're yeah. using the same the same word there. Yeah. Um, and then he says he just he he says he says I'm sorry. It's against the law. And then he says again the law. 
Um, and then the man says, you can trust us. We are not going to tell anybody. It's just the case of a short prayer. You can trust us. He says, you can trust us over and over again. And he says, but that was the trouble. He could trust no one. Right. As soon as they got back home or one or other of them would certainly begin to boast. So he's, he lacks the faith to, um, well, but I guess so does the other, so does the stranger, but he lacks the faith to, to risk anything for his right. faith. So is well, it that but- he renounced it entirely or is it he, that he doesn't have enough faith to do what the faith is asking him to do or demands of him? Well, he, uns- I mean, what's the, what's the word that like he's been, he defrocked himself, right? Like he unsacramentalized himself. Whereas the wandering priest, the stranger priest, he's still, he's weeping, but he's still hearing confessions. Mm-hmm. Like he's still performing the sacraments. And yeah, there's priest, that kind of like heartbreaking. Sorry, go ahead. Right. This it, priest hasn't. So there's that little heartbreaking sort of moment there too. You mentioned the things that the, that the stranger priest leaves in his wake. And when he leaves, Coral's barn, she later finds all the crosses he's carved into the, mm-hmm. so he, he's leaving behind the sign of the cross. Um, yes. in, in a way it's heartbreaking, but it's also like hopeful, right? Like he's yes. doing what he can, even if he can barely do it. And this other priest is not even attempting, although he likes to pretend, right? He calls them my children. Right. Hey Tim. Right. Hey, let's make sure you're still here. <laughs> I am. I'm so here. I am. I am basking in the glow of the conversation. Do you, do you want to add anything to the conversation? <laughs> I, <laughs> that sounds more critical than it meant to be. Like, <laughs> I don't want you to, I don't want you to lose out. You know? No, 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 no. I, I have, I seriously am just listening. I feel a little self-conscious because I was quiet during our first podcast and David off the air, you're like, Hey, if you have anything to say, you're welcome to say it. Um, I was just enjoying the conversation. Okay. All right. I'm totally here. Are you heart, are you, mind, and spirit? Are you murderously hurling looks at the crow? Are you having to <laughs> deal with the crows over there? My gaze is like a flash beam across dark and tumultuous crow waters. And I think that <laughs> that beam is keeping them away. Okay. Okay. Um, I am. I, Really I, uh, into that idea right there. <laughs> Heidi, can you? I think um, a little bit earlier when we were talking about Coral, I kind of heard a little bit about maybe why this book is so personal to you. Are you willing to talk about that on the air? If not, did you just maybe- punt this that question <laughs> that tried to get you to talk more over to me? <laughs> <laughs> well. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'd love to hear this from you too, but I, like I said, I read this book in my twenties. Um, and here's what I love about this book is I feel so much like the priest, not that I'm running from, you know, being hunted and on this, you know, martyrdom journey, anything like that. But that sense of being, and I'm not a priest, so I cannot turn uh, anything into the, the body and blood of God, which is what he feels unworthy to carry. And I don't have that. But the idea of being like desperately desiring 
the things of God and feeling so unworthy of them that mm-hmm. I relate to very much, but wanting to not be found a failure in my pilgrimage to the kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven, but so aware of my own faults and, and being very, very discouraged by them, like very discouraged and feeling like that's just such a long, it is such, it's just so hard. It yeah. is so hard to be a, a human person. It's, yeah. it's just hard. And that's this, what... yeah, this book acknowledges that. I love that about it. I'm like, thank you for telling the truth about it. It doesn't feel like propaganda. It doesn't feel, you know, I, I hadn't had a lot of content with really great art at the time that I read mm-hmm. this book. So that the, the willingness to go into how hard it is to be a Christian was just like balm to my soul. Yeah. That's why I think that scene where the, the, the section with, uh, where Lewis's mother sends him to her father, to mm. his father, and says, go tell your father what you've been saying. And he says, mother wants me to tell you that I don't believe any of this anymore. And he says, you don't believe what? And he says, the holy book. And then there's that moment where he says, the father says, you don't remember the time when the church was here. I was a bad Catholic, but it meant, well, music, lights, a place where you could sit out of this heat for your mother. Well, there was always something for her to do. If we had a theater or anything at all, we wouldn't feel so so left. And then later on, he says... Um, the voice says, you're angry at me. And he says, what's the good? It's not your fault. We've been deserted. And it speaks to that, to that mm-hmm. idea that you're talking about, that it's difficult to challenge. Like that is a journey that is, um, it can be overwhelming. And to be deserted in the midst of that journey is such a deep tragedy that can easily lead to despair. Right. So, right. so I think that's going along. I think that in some, that, that, when the when enduring the challenges that you're speaking of there it's despair is never that far away right i think that's mm. true for all of us like right. we're, we're always sort of not that far from despair <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. certain people yeah. tend toward it more than others but all of us without the right orientation and without the right support so to speak are how mm-hmm. easily easily could fall into despair yeah right Right. Well, and to have, I think this, or be attacked by a murder of crows, that this story communicates. And I mean, even so far as we're into it now, (laughs) excuse me, that just a hold on, just a hold on has a glory to it. Mm. Like just to not be Padre Jose, right? Yeah. (laughs) That, that that's a victory. And I feel like in some ways I wasn't raised Catholic, but I was raised a little bit like this family. Like, here's all of the reasons why it's just so easy to be a Christian. And like, it's actually really hard. And who's going to talk to me about that? So that was just so powerful to me the first time I read it. And then, you know, there's, there's just more and more and more. more. So anyway, Tim, why do you like this book? Probably less for personal reasons. I mean, everything is personal on some degree, but the thing that this book changed for me was what we talked about a little bit earlier. It was like walking into the Catholic imagination and I had Hmm. no acquaintance with the Catholic imagination. I mean, you know, I'm just, I was just raised in the South in the Protestant denomination and my family did not talk um, with sneers about Catholics, not at all. 
Um, my parents spoke very graciously about Catholics, but man, if you want to like, <laughs> there was a lot in the private school that I went to. There was a lot of talk about, um, we shouldn't even support the Billy Graham crusade because Billy Graham has Catholics sitting on the dais with him during his, you know, when he does his revivals. So to walking into this book, it was such a, like I kind of felt to some degree at home. Like I understood the priest has this divine mission that felt very known to me. But almost everything else about the book was so foreign. And yet I was sure somehow that Graham Greene was a Christian. This is when I'm, I'm like really young. I'm probably in third year of college when I first read this. Um, and so it was, kind, it was just an awakening for me. And another thing that happened not that long after that is I read Flannery O'Connor. Hmm. And I thought, whoa, what is going on here? All of you know, these two Catholic authors, authors have such a vivid spiritual vision of the life of the believer in the world. And it was and, and being compelled and attracted to narrative, to literature, I felt like like kind of I was starting to come alive a little bit but i i mean if you asked me what i thought about this novel when i finished reading it and i put it down i would have not been able to give you much of an answer i would have just fumbled and bumbled but i knew that something really powerful was up just on an intuitive level i knew something really powerful was was happening inside the pages can we can we read a little extended section? It's that section that Heidi was talking about with uh, Coral. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on page 52, 53, and 54. And I, think, I think it gets at some of the things that you guys are talking about. Um, and, and I think it's an example of where those through, some of the through lines are starting to come through, but in a way that only Graham Greene could kind of pull off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think looking at that really closely here on close reads would be, uh, <laughs> would be valuable. Would you be up for that as we kind of start to wrap up this episode? Yeah. Yes, I love that. Okay. Let's, let's, um, okay. Let's, so basically at the bottom of the bottom of 52, we'll just skip the first part of this section here. Um, but the bottom of 52 corals turns to her mother and she says, mother, do you believe there's a God? Tim, you want to pick it up there and read for a little bit and then Heidi can jump in once we get to say the bottom of 50. Um, once you get to that, the paragraph that, well, once you get to the bottom of 53, just Heidi can jump in. I'd be happy to do that. I'm on a different pagination. So you're going to have to give me a second oh. to find it. How many, how many pages into chapter three is it? Um, it's, after the Padre Jose, it's, it's four. It's chapter four. I mean, oh, it's chapter four. Yeah, chapter four. Uh, right after Padre it's Jose, closer to the end than the beginning. It begins okay. with Mrs. Fellows rocked backwards and forwards. There's a like a line break right before that, or a section break okay. right before Here. that. Heidi, why don't you start yeah, and then I'll Tim can jump in? So start right. with the oh, I found it. I just found okay. it. Mrs. Fellows rocked backwards and forwards. So, so um, all the way down to Mother, the child said, "Do you believe there's God?" Great. Okay, go. 
Uh, mother, the child said, do you believe there's a God? The question scared Mrs. Fellows. She rocked furiously up and down and said, of course. I mean, the virgin birth and everything. My dear, what a thing to ask. Who have you been talking to? Oh, she said, I've been thinking, that's all. She didn't wait for any further answer. She knew quite well there would be none. It was always her job to make the decisions. Henry Beckley, B.A., had put it all into an early lesson. It hadn't been any more difficult to accept than the giant at the top of the beanstalk, and at the age of 10, she had discarded both relentlessly. By that time, she was starting algebra. That little line there is... I um, love that. Yeah. Powerful. Surely your father hasn't... Oh, no. She put on her son a helmet and went out into the blazing 10 o'clock heat to find the cook. She looked more fragile than ever and more indomitable. When she had given her orders, she went to the warehouse to inspect the alligator skins tacked out on the wall and then to the stables to see the mules were in good shape. She carried her responsibilities carefully like crockery across the hot yard. There was no question she wasn't prepared to answer. The vultures rose languidly at her approach. She returned to the house and her mother. She said, it's Thursday. Is it, dear? Hasn't father got the bananas down to the quay? I'm sure I don't know, dear. She went briskly back into the yard and rang a bell. An Indian came. No, the bananas were not in the store. No orders had been given. Get them down, she said. At once, quickly. The boat will be here soon. Fetch, she fetched her father's ledger and counted the bunches as they were carried out. A hundred bananas or more to a bunch. They were worth, few, worth a few pence. It took more than two hours to empty the store. Somebody had got to do the work. And once before, her father had forgotten the day. And once before, her forgotten, father had forgotten the day. After half an hour, she began to feel tired. She wasn't used to weariness so early in the day. She leaned against the wall and scorched her shoulder blades. She felt no resentment at being there, looking after things. The word play had no meaning there at all. The whole of life was adult. Heidi, jump in there. In one of Henry Beckley's early reading books, there had been a picture of a doll's tea party. It was incomprehensible, like a ceremony she hadn't learned. She couldn't see the point of pretending. 456, 457. The sweat poured down the peons' bodies steadily like a shower bath. An awful pain took her suddenly in the stomach. She missed a load and tried to catch up in her calculations. She felt the sense of responsibility for the first time like a load born for too many years. 525. It was a new pain, not worms this time, but didn't scare her. It was as if her body had expected it, had grown used to it, as the mind grows up to the loss of tenderness. You couldn't call it childhood draining out of her. Of childhood, she had never really been conscious. Is that the last? She said, yes, senorita. Are you sure? Yes, senorita. But she had to see for herself. Never before had it occurred to her to do a job unwillingly. If she didn't do a thing, nobody would. But today she wanted to lie down to sleep. If all the bananas didn't get away, it was her father's fault. She wondered whether she had fever. Her feet felt so cold on the hot ground. Oh, well, she thought, and went patiently into the barn, found the torch, and switched it on. Yes, the place seemed empty enough, but she had never left a job half done. She advanced towards the back wall, holding the torch in front of her. An empty bottle rolled away. She dropped the light on it. Cerveza Moctezuma. Then the torch lit the back wall. Low down near the ground, somebody had scrawled in chalk. 
she came closer. A lot of little crosses linked in the circle of light. He must have lain down among the bananas and tried to relieve his fear by writing something. And this was all he could think of. The child stood in her woman's pain and looked at them. A horrible novelty enclosed her whole morning. It was as if today everything were memorable. One thing I I like how he, the, he, the stuff where he talks about it was a new pain, but it didn't mm-hmm. scare her. It was as if her body had expected it, had grown up to it. He keeps using this image of growing up. Um, the mind grows up to the loss of tenderness. You couldn't call it childhood draining out of her, all that. Um, the way he he kind of slowly, I suppose, reveals what's going on with mm-hmm. her is mm-hmm. it both from a craftsmanship perspective is really interesting, but also the stuff about childhood draining out of her or not draining out of her because she never had really, it had never really been something she'd been conscious of is really, is really interesting because she has been, she's never been conscious of her own childhood, right. but she has still been a child. Right. And so this is the movement towards womanhood, but she's never really had a childhood. Yeah. Right. And so yes. that sort of, that sort of, the complexity of that, that that's where the subtext, you know, there's all the subtext in these. Absolutely. There's this very profound sense of loss, right? Like she never had a childhood and now she's becoming a woman. And even though she didn't have a childhood, she still misses it. Yeah. And she can't Mm -hmm. go back and she's never going to be able to grieve that. Like, I think that that's really sad that she would never have a chance to know now it is too late for her to be a child ever. Mm. that is terribly sad and that's the i mean very much the subtext of the conversation between Luis and his father that you brought up too like there's he's never going to have a childhood in the church he won't know ever like there's yeah that's really sad and Mm. so go ahead that's all that's all (laughs) so i I keep getting lag the 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 other thing is that like Luis's father says Luis's father, you, you've been, we've been deserted. She's out there doing the job that the adults were supposed to do, but they left. So mm-hmm. she, ha- she has been deserted as well. She's been deserted to have to take charge over the job that she really didn't have any business doing. Right. I mean, she's good at it. She, she solves the problems, but she never, but because she was abandoned, like Luis was abandoned, she never got to have the childhood, but I think it goes like it even goes beyond that though. Tim, what do you make of the whole, the stuff there about, you know, al- there's a lot of counting. There's references to algebra. There's references to, um, she didn't wait for any answer. She knew there would be none. Um, yeah. The idea of, she couldn't see the point of pretending. She had to see for herself. There's all these, um, there's all these references to calculating and seeing the world through calculation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What do you make of that, that in, in, in this particular scene about moving from childhood to adulthood and mourning that loss? Well, I think that the, the first thing that we read to me kind of sets the scene. The first question she asked, mother, do you believe in God? And she knows what a fraught question that is to ask her mother. That's not... <laughs> just to raise, you know, the question that she might be wondering about this is not going to please her mother. And from that question, it immediately, the narrative immediately sweeps into the kind of uh, the difficult drudgery that her childhood has been. It's been work. It hasn't been play. It's been work. And so 
we're learning a lot about who she is, that she, she is a, how do I say this? She should be just a very practical young woman, Mm -hmm. but we're seeing that there's something kind of blossoming in her that's not born of pure practicality. She's, she's asking her mother about God. Yeah. She'd be like, like there's something awakening in her. Yeah. That's mm. not just moving the bananas. That's not just counting and tabulating. There's, there's something else. That it, that's interesting. So she's being awakened to something deeper, something richer, something more spiritual yeah. at the same time that her, she's physically changing. And it seems yes. like it's, it, this is me. I'm going to go out on a little, a little bit in some ways it is very different from um, the mother who is reading her children bedtime stories, the kind of hagiography of saints. Mm-hmm. Remember that I think it, she shows up a yeah, lot in Lewis's Lewis's mom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in some ways, she is. Um, Coral is the she looks to be like almost the antithesis of that woman in some ways. If that makes sense, I don't feel super mm. confident about that. Um, hmm. You mean that, Coral's, Coral's, sense mother, be said, Coral's mother seems the antithesis of that, or Coral seems the antithesis of that? No, the woman who is reading um, the stories about the boyhood saint. Um, Jose. Juan. No, Juan. 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 <laughs> I'm struggling here to articulate why she seems so different from that woman. I read that woman, at least at this part in the story, to have great faith, but that faith is sort of a retreat from the world. Coral seems to me like there's this, there's this germ of faith that's growing in her that is not a retreat from the world, but it's a step into the world. Right. Okay, so yes. then Heidi, how, how do you read or what do you make of then that germ of faith growing at the same time as... Right. This change in her life. Absolutely. I think this is a very specific sort of change too. And I've never seen this used in literature before. And I think it's brilliant. This, that this change is echoing, especially being written by a man. And that is a very profoundly formative time in a young woman's life. And that for him to use it in this way, way as a spiritual awakening, I think is just brilliant on a formal sense. I love it. Um, but yes, I th- actually think this is a very hopeful scene, but it's mingled with grief again, just like everything in this book, right? Like in choosing one thing, growing up is better. It is better to grow up than to be a child hmm. that there is, that is the nature of humanity, that there's an innocence to childhood, but there's a, a, a maturity a growth to grow up is, is to grow. It is to become better. And so that is what's happening to her. And I, I see it as grace that that is connected with her spiritual awakening. So I think this is a very hopeful scene, but again, it's mingled with grief and loss. He is not going to give us any, beautiful sunrises that are glinting off the frost of the trees showing an incandescent scene of glory. That's just not going to happen in this. Yeah. 
So, right. okay, let me ask you guys a well, question. I, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, David. Well, no, I, I, mean, I guess you. I have a formal <laughs> question. So do you, do you read this as Graham Greene is using her period as representative of some change in her spiritual life? Or is there, is it more like in some way, it's some kind of a cause and effect thing? Like, is he trying to create an image for what's going on? Or is it meant to be more, more narrative based? Does that make sense? It does. And I have always read it. I think this is very much open to interpretation. Whenever you have an author who uses a lot of subtext and a lot of ambiguity, there is we do readers make those calls and that's the, that any interpretation you can support from the text, I think in this particular case is valid. I have always read it as the, that it is a moment of grace in her part, an inner direct intervention or a miraculous intervention in the wake of the impact of the priest. Like, because the priest came, this change happened and he, um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. But then uh, and the thing that just struck, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. But that doesn't change your question because it's also not, it, this is not history. It's yeah, I guess fiction. It and so, are. yes. Right. And so I do think it's both. And like, and I, like I said, I think this is a brilliant objective correlative for her spiritual awakening because, because that change in a woman's life comes with pain. Mm. And can I say one other thing? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, of course. With blood. Yes. Yes. And the capacity to bear life, like the ability yeah, to yeah. Part, right? Like that's, it really is just such a brilliant what objective to what's oh, going on because it now is bleeding and death combined with the ability to produce life, which isn't yeah. in life. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But, but look at the way he creates the scene itself. I mean, he does so much with one scene because, because this happens to her, she's out mm-hmm. working while she's out working, this happens to her. And because of that, yes, she feels like she needs to lie down, right? So where because she feels like she needs to mm-hmm. lie down, where does she go? She sees the cross, right? So because of that, she <laughs> goes to the barn, she turns on the thing, uh-huh. and she sees the crosses. But she doesn't lie down, which is interesting to me. It says it specifically says that she's thinking he must have lain down among the bananas or tried to relieve his fear by writing something, and this is all I could think of. And I suspect that she's wrong about that, right? She, he probably, that's probably the mm-hmm. thing he thought of, not the only thing he could think of, right? In his fear, he turned to the cross. So I think she's wrong about yes. that. But, she, but then it says, even though she wanted to lie down, it says the child stood. So that, that little thing, that little fact that she's standing there is not, that's not a throwaway by Green. She had gone to lie down. She sees the crosses and in front of the cross, she stands in her woman's pain it says, mm-hmm. and looked at them, looks at the crosses and be- as she's looking at the crosses, a horrible novelty enclosed her whole morning. Not, not that a horrible novelty occurred to her, but it surrounded mm-hmm. her. It enclosed her like a cocoon or something like that. Or you could say a cocoon or maybe like something that's strangling her. I, I like the open-endedness of that image. It was as if today, everything were memorable. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the fact that she's standing there in front of the crosses? She wants to lie down because this happens to her. She goes there. She sees the crosses. The only reason she was in there looking at the crosses is because this happened to her. She stands in front of them and it occurs to her that everything today were memorable. What does that mean? Either of you jump in. I'm going to let Tim take this one. (laughs) Great. I'm going to talk about, 
I'm going to talk about this awakening in a young woman's life that is um, arriving at the same time as her first period. I'll lead the way on this. <laughs> um, I mean, I do think this is part of why it's so powerful is that it, these two things are happening at the same time. One of them is spiritual. One of them is physical. And gosh, don't we have there the picture of the sacraments? Like the, those two yes. things are, are intimately connected. It's mm-hmm. the sacramental way of looking at the world. It's a sacramental way of looking at the world. Right, right. Those two things are not kind of cordoned off the and spiritually separate from incarnated, each other. embodied. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and there is more to the choral story. I'm not sure we can completely unpack this, that particular sentence about the horrible novelty either, because there's more to the story to be revealed. There's a decoding still to do in this story. Sure. Uh, sure. So this is pointing forward into her life. Um, and I'll just say that for the readers. Um, but I, I think this is a conversion scene. As she's standing before the crosses. The horrible novelty sort of um, undercuts that. No, 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 no. I don't. Know. I, it's just, okay. it, I don't know. It might. It might make it more powerful. I'm just thinking about how yeah. the the choice of putting those two words together, yes. horrible novelty. Mm-hmm. Like you don't. A novelty mm-hmm. is not something typically that is horrible, right? Right. Um, not. I mean, I don't, maybe people think of the word differently, but for me, I don't think of the word novelty as something that's sort of inherently negative. But the, it's. I think of it as more of a positive thing but the horrible novelty the the combination of those two words followed by some by the idea that, that things are more memorable mm-hmm. um, or t- that today was memorable this right. just it's it leaves a lot to think about right right and I, that is why i do think this is a conversion scene along with the fact that her work is no longer enough for you 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 both both of you talked about the calculation and you know and she's like i don't want to do this anymore almost as if there's something more important drawing her. yeah and so that that's another little clue of why I would say I think that this is Coral's conversion. That does a not strike of, me as very much of a speculation. That seems Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Right yeah. on. Yeah. A lot of little crosses leant in the circle of light. <laughs> I love that image, like the idea of the circle of light with the crosses. There's like a halo thing going on there. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's really good. Hey, this is a, this is a decent book. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm enjoying, you know, unpacking it in ways that I, you know, seeing things that I never never saw before. Um, it's funny, and, David, when you when you put the reading list together, and I saw how slowly we were going. I mean, we typically go slowly on close reads, but at first I was like, wow, this is going to take a long time. But now I remember why that's such a good idea because you just can't gloss this book. Mm-hmm. Well, my initial thought was do fewer weeks because it's not terribly long. And then I kind of started looking through it and I was reading a few paragraphs and I was thinking, and I was kind of noticing my own, the way, the way it was forcing me to read slowly and I didn't uh-huh. sort through things. And I was like, I don't know, for my own sake, I don't know if I can get through, I don't know if I can keep up with it if we go too fast. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So it may may have been informed purely by selfish motives, but I'll take, I'll take, (laughs) I'll take it as a, uh, I'll I'll just, we'll go with the fact that I'm, it's it's mercy. That it was a genius Mm -hmm. move by me. And because it was, and uh, (laughs) we'll go with that. 
Do you guys have any final thoughts as we, we should wrap it up. Do you have any final thoughts? Tim, I'll let you go first. I know you got to run. You got stuff to do. I feel like we adequately covered this in the first episode, but I'm going to say it again. Close readers. If one begins this book, one must finish this book <laughs> and other books. It is not, we do not put that requirement upon you. But if you've arrived at this point of the book and you're stumbling and you're having a hard time, I'm sorry, you have to finish it. I mean, are there any sort of like, um, privileges that we might revoke if someone said, man, I made it to chapter four and I just kind of pulled the rip cord and can we revoke any privileges? David and Heidi, we could, we could just stop making the show. <laughs> right. That seems a little bit draconian, but we, yeah, I guess we could. We could go to someone's house. We could go to their houses and delete that podcast app from their phone. I don't um, <laughs> We could take away dessert. They can go to bed early. <laughs> they have to go to bed without supper. Not let right? them listen to Adventures in Odyssey. Uh, right. Maybe, you. The eyes of TJ Eckelberg are on you. <laughs> these may be, um, these may be a little bit too close to home. I mean, I'm running out of ideas here. I'm just going to some of the things that I, right. Right. <laughs> Although I, to be honest, I've never actually not let my kids have dinner. So maybe I should actually do that before I threaten it too. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that would be like a redirection of your, your kid, your poor kids going to bed without dinner. Why, Dad? Well, you know, I got to practice for close reads. <laughs> got to practice when I preach. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's all right. Jeremiah wouldn't care anyway. Um, <laughs> he just he just wants a bag of chips as it is. Um, all right, Tim, go do your thing. Okay. Uh, thanks for being on Hi, the show. Um, My pleasure. Thanks to you guys. everybody out to everybody who's been listening. Don't forget about uh, Belmont Abbey College. Head over to belmontabbeycollege.edu/greatbooks to learn about their program. Remember that uh, it does include uh, scholarships, nearly covering nearly half of the college's tuition. And they also, your students, you or your students, whoever you know wants to ends up participating, could uh, study abroad in Ireland or Italy. So those are some pretty great opportunities. And again, belmontabbeycollege.edu/greatbooks. Um, if you have been listening to this show and you have made it all the way to the end of this episode and you generally seem to make it all the way to the end of the show, I'm going to assume that you like this show. So Ed, if you like this show, we would really appreciate it if you went over to patreon.com slash close reads and you supported it. Um, there are a number of different levels. There's great swag involved, bonus content, um, talks that our, uh, our contributors have given at conferences are, are uh, included for, for uh, donors over there, for people who... I financially help support the show. We would certainly really appreciate that. Um, it allows us to keep going and expand the shows and the, the podcast network as we've been doing. But if you don't feel like you can do that, please at least head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts and leave us a review, either a, a, a written review or a just a rating. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to the shows. So don't forget about the daily poem. We got a poem going up every day. Uh, don't forget about the place of thing. We just uh, recorded our first episode on Much Do About Nothing, Act One. That'll be going up today. So by the time this air episode airs, that will have already gone up. So this is just a lot of great content. Make sure you subscribe to your rating, reviewing, and if you are so inclined, we would certainly appreciate your support over on the Patreon page. Heidi, thanks for being yes. here. Thanks for participating. <laughs> thanks, David. That was great. Thanks for bringing your uh, love of this book to the show. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. So for Tim, for Heidi, for all of us here at the Cersei Institute and the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Happy reading, and we will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.